hands on the ceiling if you want me. Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more attention, that just need a little more love. And our movie today is one that's especially close to my heart. This is one of those that it's this great great underrated horror movie it's been sitting out there for years and it's one of these things that hardly anybody knows about it and it just is astounding how little known this movie is for how good it is and the movie i'm talking about of course is a uh, 1980 actually canadian horror movie called the changeling and i would i'll flat out say i think this might be the best ghost movie of all time the best ghost story and it's one that I have uh, really uh, high regard for. I used to have a website called 10 Great Horror Movies Most People Have Never Seen. This changeling is one of the one of the centerpieces of that list. So I've known about this movie for years, and I've been hyping it up. So we're going to delve into it. And I have a uh, good guest for this one. This guy, let's see, uh, his name is Matt Cowan. He writes for a horror movie website. He has written some short stories as well. Just a big, all-around horror movie fan. And I uh, I have something I have to say to him right when he uh, comes out here, because I'm so excited that he's here. But welcome to the show, horror movie fan Matt Cowan. Uh, hello. It's good to be here. I'm excited. <laughs> okay, and here we go, Matt. The thing that I have to say to you, this is like the highest compliment I could give to a person. When I first laid out the list of all the movies I wanted to do on staff picks, The Changeling was one of the top ones on my list for most obscure movie. And I'm like, I'm going to have a hard time finding a co-host for this one. This is one that I'm assuming you you have found this as well. There aren't that many people that know about this movie, right? No, it doesn't seem to be uh, one of the real well-known uh, known ones. Yeah, and so I thought I'd be out there scrimping and pimping and hustling on Twitter trying to find anybody who would just please watch this movie and talk about it with me. And you, yourself, approached me and said, hey, how about this movie, The Changeling? Let's do a show on that. And I'm like, Matt Cowan, you are my favorite person in the world because you <laughs> came to me on this one. So thank you very much. Oh, yeah, I love uh, – I'm a big fan of Haunted House uh, short stories, novels, movies, uh, that I'd say haunted house ones are my favorite. So, uh, so I really love this one. Okay. Why don't you give people a history, kind of what you do, what you're known for? Cause you were explaining to me before I went on the air, kind of your back history with horror movies. And it's actually far more extensive than mine. Even what do you do? Okay. Well, I, uh, I'm actually more, I guess, of a liter literary one. I like reading, uh, I read lots of horror short stories. Uh, on my website, horrordelve.com, I uh, generally will pick a horror author. I'll read a whole bunch of their short stories or maybe their book, and I'll I kind of give a little short, hopefully non-spoiler uh, synopsis, so that if you're looking for something in an anthology, you can kind of maybe know what you're look you know getting into. Uh, but on the movie front, I've recently started uh, writing a a science fiction horror movie reviews for a fairly new magazine called black infinity, uh, from rocket science books. And, uh, it's called Matt Cowan's threat watch. And I try to give like, uh, like if it's a deadly planets issue, I'll watch a bunch of movies about uh, deadly planets and I'll try to give like how you could survive and, uh, things like that. 
Now, how did you come across The Changeling? Because, again, I'm not uh, overselling it to people when I say this movie is almost unknown. And it's what I will give you my history, how I first uh, learned about it. There's a uh, website out there. People may know about it called Retro Crush. It was written by a uh, pop culture writer named Robert Barry, I believe his name was. And he had a thing that was a, a section on his website, which was the 100 greatest horror movies or horror moments of all time. And a lot of people, maybe back in the early 2000s, would have known about this website. It was a very popular page. And he was the one that was really pimping out the changeling. He had a couple little moments on there on his scariest moments list. So that's how I... Came out, I really learned about the Changeling, but I'm, I suspect you may have known it before I did. Did you see this in the movie? Uh, did you see this movie in the theater or something? Well, I did not see it in the theaters. Uh, I can't remember the exact first time. It's been a long time ago, but I know in the late 80s, early 90s, I uh, was at the video store pretty much constantly, and I spent 90% of my time in the horror movie section. So, And if it was a haunted house or any kind of ghost uh, movie, uh, I rented it. So I, I am sure that's when I came across it. Of course, I own a copy of the DVD, you know, since then. Uh, so I think I just found it at the, the video store, but I loved it. Yeah, and that's something we've talked about here on Staff Picks before. I just lament the fact that there aren't video stores anymore because, you know, people of your and my age, we this was like part of our, half of our childhood. We just wander the video store looking for cool boxes or titles or a cover that would catch your interest. And the Changeling has one of the all-time great ones where it's this little boy's wheelchair and it's kind of in a in black and red silhouette and it's just this creepy little cover. And then you look and you read the back of the video the the box and it says you know it's a haunted house, a uh, kid who died in a house. It's a haunted a haunting. And it's, uh, yeah, so that's just one thing that I always lament that younger people will never have that experience that we did of just discovering a movie based on the box. Yeah, and that, that would make a big difference for me whenever I'd be, you know, looking, uh, perusing the shelves. Uh, anything that was like a haunted house or, you know, ghosts, uh, that was, you know, the first thing I would snatch up. And a lot of them were disappointing once you actually uh -huh. watched them, but this is one that really, really worked well. Yeah, there's... There's so many things about this movie in particular that stand out to me as a horror fan, and we'll get into it, obviously, when we go into the episode. But the one thing that jumps out to me, and I'm curious if you'd agree with this, is that I don't think this is necessarily one of the scariest movies of all time. I think it's a very memorable movie, but to me it's almost more sad than scary. And it's one of these that really jumps out of me. It's kind of a lost era of horror where... The point of the movie wasn't to beat you over the head with jump scares and terrify you and make you uncomfortable. It was really just a poignant, sad tale of death and, you know, a little boy who died with just this. There were some horror themed elements, but the horror wasn't the general gist of the story. The horror, horror just kind of drove the sadness of it. Yeah, I think maybe part of that also might be the main character, uh, John uh, Russell, John Russell, John Russell. Yeah, he wasn't didn't seem super scared by a lot of this stuff i mean the stuff that in most movies i think the person in the house would be running in terror he seemed like he wanted to get to the you know the bottom of what was causing it yeah i, I think that 
is part of it also. Yeah, and just again, a lot there's I was actually really literally just discussing this movie about an hour ago on Facebook and someone said, "You know, I love The Changeling, but why wasn't it a bigger hit? Why isn't it better known?" And I kind of reeled off the top of my head a couple ideas. I'm like, "Well, one, it's not it doesn't beat you over the head with scares. It doesn't try to make you the viewing experience uncomfortable. And then it's like it's got older leads. It's got George C. Scott as the lead and then his uh, wife at the time, I forget her name, but she's the female lead." It's like an. It's made by older people. It's made for an older crowd. By an older. It's made by older people. It's kind of uh, poignant more than horrible. And again, it's just. Uh, it's just a whole different type of movie making than you would see anymore. There's no way you'd ever see a mainstream movie like this anymore, especially like a horror movie. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think there's too many nowadays. A lot of jump scares are a big thing or a lot of gore. And uh, this one doesn't need any of that. Uh, the mystery, I think, really is what uh, what drives this one. Yeah. And that's something I've been very proud of on staff picks is that I I have a lot of listeners who don't really like horror movies because they've been burned so many times in the past or they get scared in theaters or it's just they don't like the experience. I always take pride in recommending horror movies that I think non-horror fans would like. And this one, again, absolutely right at the top of the list. Like I said earlier, I had that list, uh, 10 great horror movies most people have never seen. Uh, I already did one on this podcast. I did Black Christmas, which is much more hardcore than The Changeling. But The Changeling is one, again, I can recommend this to anybody. If you know, even if you don't like horror movies, this is such a fantastic movie with such good performances and just haunting. Just the story will latch in the back of your brain and kind of haunt you and you'll remember it. So it's just that's why I, I uh, really focus uh, this type of show on horror movies like this for, uh, I would say, a horror movie for non-horror fans. Yes, yeah, I agree. And I will say one more thing about this before I ramble too much is that I am from Seattle, Washington, a proud Northwesterner. This is one of the few Seattle movies that I had in my childhood. Like, prior to Seattle becoming all hip in the 90s with all the grunge and everything, there was very little representation of the Northwest in mass media and stuff. And The Changeling is set in Seattle, filmed in Seattle. So I'm proud to say this is of my people. Uh, well, that's cool. <laughs> Okay, anything else you want to talk about before we delve into the plot here? Because this is, a again, a very intricate story, and I think we really kind of need to walk people through it because I would expect a lot of people will be listening to this before they watch it in this case. Uh, I did just I, – when I was uh, researching a little about it, I, I guess it was made by – or uh, produced by ITC Entertainment, uh, which the same year also put out the greatest uh, sword and sorcery movie of all time, Hawk the Slayer, so uh, – <laughs> I think that was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, Matt has been uh, pimping that Hawk the Slayer movie to me. I've never actually seen it, so I'm going to go watch it because you talk so highly. You said that's like your favorite fantasy horror movie, right? Yeah, the special effects are, are not great, but uh, I just super loved it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Anytime I, I hear a person have like this glowing recommendation of this little obscure movie and they, like, they love it so much and they just talk about it. So I have to see this movie because, again, I just did an episode on Fortress, which is the same thing. Like Nobody's heard <laughs> of that movie, but this guy, Rob, loved it so much that he got me to love it too. So I'm excited to uh, – in the future, we will get into that one. All right, that would be awesome. Okay, so here we go. The Changeling, a uh, Canadian horror movie from 1980, not to be confused with the Angelina Jolie Clint Eastwood one, which came out in what, 19 or 2000? When did that come out? 2008 or something? 
I am not sure. I had heard of that one, but I have never seen that one, so I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a drama, a period piece drama. That has nothing to do, again, the same title, Changeling. This one's called The Changeling. And just to give people a history, um, Matt, are you aware I actually looked up the etymology of this word today, what changeling means? Oh, yeah, that's uh, when it's supposed to be when fairies uh, replace or they steal a baby and replace it with one of their own. And it uh, sort of uh, lives their life. Uh, I think the baby that's taken goes to the uh, fairy realm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of like Rumpelstiltskin. I think we're somewhere in this realm at this point. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, that's it's a it's a fantasy literary concept. This changeling where babies are switched and an imposter leads the life of the original. And again, as we get into this movie, you'll understand why the movie is called that because that literally is the plot here. And it's a very uh, uh, sad. Again, I keep bringing up the word sad. This is a very sad movie. And I feel like the changeling concept is sort of something you don't catch uh, maybe at, at first uh, a little it's, later on in the movie you start to understand why it's called changeling but uh, i don't think that's immediately obvious yeah again it's a very uh scholarly literary kind of intelligent movie and again that may go a long way to explain why it's not such a big hit well-known horror movie i mean this this movie came out in 1980 the same year as friday the 13th you can guess which one the audiences were flocking towards this is maybe a little it's aiming maybe a little higher than the horror crowd always appreciates yeah. Okay. I guess it's Nev Campbell's uh, favorite uh, horror movie she listed, at least at one point. I heard that Nev Campbell likes it, and I heard there's a couple other directors. I'm blanking off the top of my head, but, like, this is a very influential movie. We're not just pulling out this obscure movie that nobody's seen. Like, people who know horror and the history of horror know this movie. So it's not – like, this is one that just absolutely deserves a little more attention, I think. Yes, Definitely. Okay, so we start the movie in uh, upstate New York. This is the story of a compo- uh, of a composer named John Russell, and he is played by very acclaimed actor George C. Scott, who isn't someone you'd necessarily know from horror movies. He was like did dramas, he did uh, Patton, he won Oscars, like he was famous for not showing up and boycotting the Oscars. Just a very acclaimed, famous actor, and then he's you'd say kind of slumming it here in a horror movie, but like it's, it's weird having someone of his stature in a movie like this. I think he was a big get for them. I'm sure that uh, they were pretty excited to have him sign on. <laughs> no. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he gives us a legitimacy than that most horror movies wouldn't have. And again, this is the story of him. He's a music composer. He plays the piano and the movie starts with him and his family on vacation. It's John Russell and his wife and they have a little daughter and they're uh, in New York, and they're like, it's snowing. They're driving through the mountains, and it's snowing, and uh, their car breaks down. And this is like the preamble to the start of the movie. And why don't you, Matt, give us a little uh, taste of the tragedy that's about to, default, to befall poor John here. It, well, they you know, obviously they have car trouble. They're starting off uh, pushing the car because I guess the engine is broke down or whatever. And uh, so they're pushing the car, and they, they seem to be in a super good mood for – uh, having such bad luck come their way. But uh, John goes to a phone booth, uh, they had phone booths in, <laughs> and uh, to uh, call for help. Uh, so he's watching the whole time when he sees uh, a big dump truck and a car coming the opposite direction. It's, it's in the winter, so the roads are slick, and they, uh, uh, his family, is, you know, his daughter and his, uh, his wife are tragically uh, basically run over uh, in the accident that happens. 
Yeah, and this is, again, the first three minutes of the movie, this guy having fun with his family. They're just, you know, driving around the mountain pass. Their car breaks down. He walks over to get some help, and he has to watch, tragically, as his family is wiped out right in front of him, his wife and especially his little girl. And it's just a big haunting moment. You don't actually see. It's like it's not graphic, but, like, that's going to be this uh, onus hanging over this guy's head the entire rest of his life that his daughter died, and now it's just him by himself. His wife died. His whole family was ripped from him. And uh, we, you know, we cut to his life in New York. He lives in this big apartment. And we get the sense that he's this big, famous composer. People know who he is. Like, he writes Broadway show tunes or classical compositions. And now he can't live in New York anymore because he's in this house and he's haunted that his family has died and his daughter has died. And you can just see all the pain in his eyes, especially like he has to go through his daughter's toys. And there's this little red rubber ball. This will become important in the movie. This little rubber ball that belonged to his daughter. He can't throw it away because it reminds him of her. But he just uh, every time he sees it, it makes him sad. So John is basically going to up and relocate and move his life. He can't handle New York anymore. So he goes across the country. He has been hired at uh, the University of Washington, I believe, out in Seattle. And he flies across the country to start a new life. And this is the crux of the movie that when he gets to Seattle, he you know hooks up with the local historical society for some reason. And they're like, well, we'll help you find a house. He's like, I like something big. I like something with a music room, someplace I can just kind of bang around on the piano because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, bad memories in my life. I just want somewhere I can be all by myself out in the woods and play the piano. And they hook him up with this this house that's a, a mansion. I'm Matt. I believe a mansion would be a good way to describe it. Uh, yes, I guess that house... Uh doesn't actually exist they for that movie they built a facade in front of a more modern house and then uh, all the interiors right i guess were filmed inside uh you know the sound stage but yeah it's a beautiful house i wish it did exist <laughs> you know what was funny is that i always thought it did exist again i have my my seattle feelers out there and i've i've heard people tell me oh i know where this movie was filmed it was filmed up here it's this house but that's actually not true yeah like you said it's all a sound stage in vancouver but yeah so He's out in Seattle, and he gets this big house, and I, I forget the name. Do you remember the actual name of the house? They say it in the movie. Chessman House. Yeah, so it's this famous historical house, the Chessman House, and it's really more like a mansion, like a museum, this giant house. I mean, there's must be, you know, ten bedrooms in this place. There's like four stories, and it's just him banging around in there. And, you know, he loves it at first because this is a place that he can just kind of go and be alone with his thought, thoughts and record his music. But right from the start, we get the sense that something is not right in this house. Uh, what was the first scene? Is it the, the keys playing by themselves? Yeah, the, the piano key uh, plays. I think he leaves the room with the piano and the, the key, you know, just uh, depresses without anybody there. So I guess that's the the beginning of, of things happening. Yeah. And again, this is really at heart a ghost story, and we'll have pianos playing by themselves. We'll have ghosts' uh, doors opening and closing by themselves. It'll get a little more intrusive later. It's, it's, uh, the ghost is going to ramp up the behavior. But uh, yeah, so Russell, he settles into his life in Seattle, and we see him teaching his first class at UW. Again, for non-locals, that's what University of Washington is called, UW. And you can see all the UW locations. And then we meet a, uh, another character in this movie who's going to become very prominent, although you don't uh, realize it right at the start. This is uh, the senator. There's the senator from the state of Washington, Joseph Carmichael, who uh, John Russell sees at a gala. And again, he will become important later. 
Oh uh, yeah, he's a major part of the the, the film for sure. And uh, also, I, I think early on there's like a subtle uh, influence of the uh, the spirit as far as uh, the music that he composes. Uh, but uh, you don't really realize that uh, something's happening at, at that. Oh point. yeah, that's right. okay. Yeah, so he's co- uh, composing like original composition, right? He's putting together this new piece of music. Yes, right. Okay, so again, yeah, this this senator guy, Joseph Carmichael, the most famous, prominent member of Seattle society. He, like, donates to the Historical Society. His family owns everything in the area. They've owned it forever. And he will become very important to the story. So don't forget this old guy, uh, Joseph Carmichael. Yeah, he'll he'll definitely come back later, uh, uh, serve a very important role. Okay, so, again, we're kind of, uh, this movie moves along at kind of a quick pace at the start here where, you know, John Russell's back at his house and he's playing his composition. Again, he's writing this original song, and one day he starts hearing banging in the house, this really loud banging, like on the walls, pound, 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 and he cannot figure out where it's coming from, and apparently this thing, it's it happens regularly. We learn that every morning at uh, 6 a.m., this pounding happens on the wall for exactly 30 seconds and then stops. And again, this is the first sign where this movie gets starts getting a little creepy here. Yeah, he, start, he checks the water pipes and, of course, looking for uh, natural explanations for it, but uh, doesn't seem to find anything that exactly fits. And, of course, why would it be happening uh, at a specific time, 6 o'clock all the time? Yeah, and so, again, this pounding is happening, and uh, you can see the doors opening and closing behind him, and, and Russell doesn't really see these at first. It's one of these where, as the audience, we see the house is just kind of kind of alive behind him, and uh, what really, where it really kicks into gear here, and he realizes something's wrong besides the banging, again, uh, the first time the banging happens, he calls in the plumber, and the plumber says, oh, it's just pipes, because, of course, that's what they do in horror movies. It's always pipes, right, Matt? Right. <laughs> so the we see that this is where it amps up. The next day, Russell is at at his house. He has a bunch of kids over, and they're performing a sectional, like a violin concerto that he's writing for them. And after he leaves, or after all the kids leave, he hears running water. This is the the ghost in the house is going to start amping up his uh his ability to try to get Russell's attention. Now, not only is there banging on the wall, now we see now we hear water starting to run by itself. Yeah, he's. I work for a water company, so he's gonna have a high water bill if uh, that keeps going. But yeah, his uh, kitchen sink and uh, the the bathtub upstairs, uh, yeah, water's running just on its own. Yeah, so the sink again, the kitchen sink, but the the one that really creeps him out is is Russell hears this uh, bathtub running upstairs. And again, this house is so big. There's floors and rooms he has never been in. And he just is following the sound of this running water. Where is this coming from? And he goes up to the attic and he finds way at the top of the house, there's this little child's bathtub. And the way it's been running all by itself. For some reason, it started, you know, the, the faucet turned on. I mean, as a, a water expert here, Matt, you're I'm sure you're the first one to tell me that does not often happen in old bathtubs, right? No, no, that's not normal. <laughs> So Russell turns off the bathtub. He's like, why is this water starting on its own? And this is where we get one of the few, not really a jump scares, but one of the really few minor horror elements in the movie where all of a sudden he sees an image of like a dead boy under the water. Yeah, the first uh, physical manifestation uh, that you know he's seen so far. Uh, I, uh, I will say I was a little disappointed that he maybe wasn't a little spookier looking as far as uh, – it's still cool, but uh, you know I thought maybe – Maybe look a little more pale or something, but uh, but it still it still uh, definitely creeps him out. 
Yeah, again, just it's just for a split second he sees this dead boy under the water and like Matt said, he's not all, you know, pale and beat up. He's a fresh, freshly dead corpse, so it's it's, <laughs> it's tastefully done. As befitting a George C. Scott movie. <laughs> Okay, so Russell goes back to the historical society, and he's like, you know, all these weird things are happening in my house. And he's like, has this ever happened to anybody before? And the realtor he's working with has only been there for a year, and she's like, I've never heard of anything there. And so he's trying to figure out what's going on. And this is where we meet, I don't even remember this lady's name. There's like a creepy old lady who works at the historical society who's like in the know and knows everything that's going on. Yes, I have her name. So I, I know she's... Uh... Uh, she's definitely very uh, kind of bitchy. I, I was—I uh, think I have her quote there. Uh, you know, there's some question about your lease, Mister Russell. That, that's kind of what she opens with. <laughs> that's not how you open a speech, right? <laughs> you got to open with a joke. Someone tell these creepy old ladies. Open with a joke. And uh, she's just really uh, foul-faced about it, and uh, almost as if he did something wrong. But all he's, you know, he's just looking for a place uh, to stay. Yeah, and she gives him the warning. This is where we first get the sense that maybe this house might not be the best place to live. Where she says, "You know, that house is not fit to live in. No one's been able to live in it. It doesn't want people." So luckily, we have some old lady exposition there to fill us in on the fact that. Yes, this does happen a lot, and it spooked everyone, and they all leave, and you better get the hell out of that house or bad things are going to happen to you. Yeah, which I also think is uh, kind of unique about this film because most um, you know haunted house movies, uh, the person who's like found out that the house that they're out is, is haunted, and they're looking for a way to get out of their lease or to get to move somewhere else, and they're usually trapped in it. Or This is one of the few ones where – uh, they're threatening to kick him out of the haunted house, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and like you said, he's not really scared here. Like, almost right from the jump, this guy Russell's not scared. He's more, like, intrigued. He's like, what's going on in this house? And again, I mean, he was Patton, so he's a tough motherfucker. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> he's not going anywhere, but yeah, he's, uh, right from the start, he's like, huh, that's interesting. Where, again, another movie would not approach it that way. Yeah. All right, so Russell has learned that the house doesn't want him there, and he goes back to the house, of course, because that's what he does. He's like, well, I'm John Russell. I'll stay here. And the next day, now the house is, like, screaming at him practically to notice me. Please, something's wrong here. Please do something. And the next day, Russell's out walking in the front yard, and this window in the house blows out. The glass shoots out towards him, and he's like, huh, what was that? And he looks up, and as he looks up, he happens, his eye happens to glance up to the top of this house, and he sees a little room, a little window right at the top of the house that he's never noticed. It's like four flights up. It's all by itself, and he's like, I've never noticed that room up there before. I wonder what's up there. So here we go. This is where we're going to start to learn the mystery of what's going on. He's going to go explore the little room. That's where he finds uh, that you know there's a secret room hidden behind uh, you know some boarded up. I believe that was in the bathroom, right? Uh, yeah, it's it's a closet. It's like a, there's the bathroom where he found the bathtub and a little closet, right. and and the entrance to this room has been boarded up. It's in the back of the closet. Someone has gone to great pains to make sure nobody will ever explore this room. Yeah, so he realizes there's a room in the house that uh, he didn't know was there previously. So. Which I I love I love uh, secret rooms. So. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that's the cornerstone of any great ghost story the the secret room that has been walled over. Yeah, because you know that they're definitely hiding something if the, they don't want you uh, going in there. So. Oh, yeah. Now, shit's gone down in this room. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I was curious with the uh, historical society too. Uh, when she says that nobody was meant to live there, kind of makes you wonder uh, what you know the, the previous people have lived there. Well, if nobody's meant to live there, are people meant to do like other stuff? Like, are they supposed to be pil- filming like porn movies and stuff in here? <laughs> <laughs> that might drive the ghost out. <laughs> yeah, but I, I would like to know. Again, this is one of those movies you could. I would love to see like a novelization or something like that to explain what has happened in the past because she's quite insistent that this has been happening for years and get out of there. So, yeah, I wonder if it was like the Amityville Horror House where, you know, this ghost has just been scaring the crap out of people for decades. And it's a powerful ghost. I mean, a lot of the stuff that it ends up, you know, doing throughout the movie, uh, it seems more powerful than most ghosts we see in haunted houses, really. <laughs> yeah, I just did an episode on Clash of the Titans, and this is this uh, episode. This ghost basically has Zeus powers. Yeah, we're gonna learn it can kill people and stuff. Yeah, I mean, he can pretty much do whatever he wants. I'm not sure why he didn't just uh, you know take care of issues without John's help, but. <laughs> Okay, so we go up to the bedroom, this little bedroom, and again, this is where I say this movie is more sad than scary, that John learns this is this little child's bedroom, and it looks like a kid was locked up here, and there's like a padlock on the door, and you just look around the room, and he sees like a little wheelchair, like a little, they describe later as like a little gnome-sized wheelchair, like there was a smallish kid that lived in here, and he finds toys, and it's all cobwebby, like it's clear no one's been up in this room for many years, but it's obvious that a little kid lived here at one point. He sees a piano, he sees a composition book, and he sees, this will be this will drive the story, he sees a little music lesson book, like a little kid would have done their music lessons in it, and it has initials on it, CSB 1909. And, uh, and then we find the other thing that really makes this story interesting, the music box. Yeah, and then that's kind of where he ends up realizing that the ghost was affecting him basically from when he first moved in the house because uh, the music it plays is uh, what he thought he was composing just from his own mind. It's the exact same music as the music box. Yeah, yeah, and that's a trope that I've always loved in horror movies. I love old-timey music boxes and just that, that – uh, I don't even know how to describe it. What instrument is that that's playing where it's just like plucking the little, the little dots on the paper as it goes by? Yeah, is that like a Victrola kind of? I'm not sure if that's exactly what it is, but it seems, uh, I don't know, similar. <laughs> yeah, it's something like that. Again, it's just this old-timey 1900s music, and he John opens the music box, and it's this, again, a little toy a kid would have had back in the 1900s, and it's literally playing the same song that he's been composing downstairs. So somehow there's been a psychic connection that since John has been in this house, this ghost is speaking to him and, and just desperately trying to you know communicate with him and he has been channeling this music through john so john is understandably a little spooked by this point he's like how am i playing the song that's coming from this music box how does that happen and he goes back to the historical society and he, you know he's like what what happened in this house he saw on the the, the little child's music book it said 1909 he's like what happened in 1909? And they're like, well, we have records going back to 1920, so we just know about that. Nothing happened since 1920. So he's like, and again, this is the key question in this movie. What happened between 1909 and 1920 in this goddamn house? Yeah, so it's obvious that uh, something's been suppressed with uh, there being no records you know, during that time period. And the, the old lady, this is the creepy old lady in the historical society who kind of is just watching. Like she, you get the sense she knows what's happened in this house and she doesn't want anybody to know. She just wants him to get out of there. And so he's kind of badgering her like, what happened in this house? And uh, 
this is uh, what she's talking about. You know, she says, well, there uh, an old man lived there. His name was Barnard. He had a doctor, or he was a doctor. He had a son and a daughter. And she's like, and this is, we don't learn this until later. She's kind of trying to throw him off the scent. She's like, oh, I think a tragedy happened there in 1909. I think there was an issue. And this is where John decides, well, something happened in this house and some kind of accident in 1909. And I will go to the old horror movie trope, the microfiche. So we, we, uh, Oh, just a aside here, Matt, you'll appreciate this. I saw a thing, uh, someone was showing inventions to modern-day kids, old inventions, and someone showed them a microfiche machine in the library, and they're like, what is this? And the kid's like, oh, that's what they go to in horror movies to find out why things are haunted. <laughs> As the, uh, the internet for old haunted house movies. <laughs> yes. So John goes to the University of Washington library and he looks up microfiche and he sees in this house there was indeed a doctor named Barnard and he had a little girl named Cora Barnard and she was run over by a coal cart back in 1909 and he's putting two and two together he's like the music lesson book said CSB her name is Cora Barnard this must be the little girl that died who lived in this room and she died and she's probably trying to reach out to me in some way and he's kind of putting the pieces together in his head and it turns her out she died and he's like why is she trying to get in touch with me and his friends are like well maybe because your daughter died too and she knows you've been through the grief and she's trying to reach out to you the you know daughter to son, father and he's like I can't do that anymore. I've been through the the tragedy of losing a kid. I cannot be involved in this again. And he's very shaken at this point. He goes home and he's like, I just, I, I gotta, I wash my hands of this. I'm not gonna deal with this. And as he goes back to the house, this is where it starts amping up. Is that he uh, walks in the front door and immediately bouncing down the stairs, right in front of him comes his daughter, his dead daughter's red rubber ball. And he's like, Oh my God. The ghost is now taking his daughter's toys and giving them to him as a gift to reach out to him. Yeah, uh, that really kind of freaks him out. So he decides to put an end to that. He uh, he takes the ball. He drives it out to a bridge and uh, throws it uh, into the water uh, to you know try to be free of it uh, forever, I guess. Yeah, I think I think that that's probably Lake Washington. He probably drops it off the floating bridge. He drops the ball. He goes back to the house. He's like, no, screw this. We're not playing this game anymore. And look what happens when he comes back to the house. Matt, what comes bouncing down the stairs again? Yeah, the ball, which he just got done throwing, assumingly miles away from uh, the house, uh, comes bouncing uh, down the stairs again to him. So apparently the, the ghost can transport thing or teleport things from, uh, I guess, whatever distance it wants. I, I think the ghost is kind of letting him know that uh, he can't get rid of it uh, that easily, I guess. And the ghost can dry the ball off, too, which is impressive. It's like a uh, one of those uh, <laughs> vacuuming stations at the car wash. Uh, well, we know later on he can. Uh, the ghost can blow some good wind, so maybe it, uh, it it dried it off that way. Yeah. Okay. So the ghost has just made it clear to Russell, you're not leaving. You're gonna help me. And he's like, oh crap, fine. This this thing, it's it's retrieving my daughter's dead ball or my dead daughter's ball. So this is where Russell decides, okay, well, clearly this spirit is trying to speak to me. It, it desperately wants me to know something. How do I find out what it wants? And as luck would have it, at the local University of Washington, uh, <laughs> there's a, uh, a psychic research department, which I do not remember being a large part of UW, but apparently there's a whole department there for psycho or psychics and stuff. Yeah, I'm not sure how, uh, how effective a psychical research diploma would, uh, would be for too many jobs. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably more helpful than a philosophy degree, I'll say that. <laughs> uh. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, he goes to the psychic research department and he talks to some doctor there, and the doctor's like, "Well, what you need is a medium." And uh, Russell's like, but I, I don't believe in mediums. And the doctor's like, well, that doesn't matter because the mediums, you know, 99% of them are complete BS. But I happen to know 1% who are real, and I'll bring her out to her house, and she'll help you. And this really is the best scene, in my opinion, in this movie, the uh, seance scene. Oh, yeah, I love that. This is probably one of the main reasons I love this movie so much. I guess the... A uh, guy who you know the, who uh, did the screenplay adaptation of that. They said he, he reportedly uh, spent six months researching uh, you know psychical or uh, parapsychology encounters. From what I read, they said he read over 700 books and almost 2,000 case histories. Mm-hmm. I don't see how that could be possible, but uh, I think he pulled out uh, all the stuff he he, uh, he read in, in the different ways that this works out. Well, I think I read somewhere that the writer of this movie had something very similar to this happen to him. Like he was actually, he said he was contacted by a ghost and he had to get a medium in there and they did a seance. So like this actually, stuff like this actually happened to the writer of this movie, right? Did you read that? Uh, Yeah, Russell Hunter. I I guess the screenwriters were Adrian Morrill and William Gray, but uh, it was based on, uh, I guess, Russell Hunter's work. I'm not exactly sure how that worked out. Uh, but I guess they did a bunch. I, I don't know if they, you know, just added a bunch of stuff for that. But yeah, supposedly uh, Russell Hunter claimed that uh, all that happened to him when he was living in Colorado hmm. back in the '60s. Was that at the Shining Hotel he was living at? <laughs> well, actually, supposedly that was at uh, the Henry Treat Rogers Mansion in Denver, Colorado. So I don't know why they ended up moving it to Seattle, but uh, he he said it happened in Denver. Okay, yeah. So again, this is a really uh, hardcore scene. This is if you ever wanted to see a good seance scene in a movie, this is about the best one I've seen. I would put this probably better, even better than some of the Exorcist scenes. Um, I'm a big fan of the uh, Drag Me to Hell seance where the goat comes to life, but it's a whole different type of, of <laughs> thing. But yeah, this one's played very straight. They bring in this lady. Her name is Lynn. And she's got, like, a whole entourage of her little flunkies that come with her, like the assistant seance people. Yeah, and uh, I know she starts doing the automatic writing, which, I don't know, as far as uh, if you're looking for a great scene written in, uh, like, a short story for automatic writing, The the Beast with Five Fingers by W.F. Harvey has a superb one. Okay, so is this is this a common way? I'll describe this to people who have never seen it. They set up all this recording equipment, like audio tapes, and they set up this cone. I don't even know what the cone is. I'll, I'll let you explain the cone in a second. But what she does is she tries to channel the spirit of, in the house, and she's just scribbling on a piece of paper. She's just moving her hand left and right in just aimless motions, and every so often she'll write a word when the spirit speaks to her. And then I love because she's got like an assistant who has to read the word for everybody. Like, she'll write no, and the assistant says, he said no. <laughs> I guess like Galaxy Quest, we just did, he repeats the computer. But what, what's like, what is all the equipment here, and what is, is this the standard way of doing uh, seances? Uh, well, from what I've read, there's supposed to be several different ways, I guess, that you could do it. Uh, they just chose to use a number of them in the same scene. I do love that uh, automatic writing thing, although it seems like they would have to have a huge stack of paper with you know, how, how it goes. But uh, the cone, uh, I did some research on that. I guess it's called a spirit trumpet, uh, which is supposed to amplify the voice of a spirit in a room. Some of the things I looked up about it is is really crazy, and I don't think they could do it with the budget where it's supposed to uh, 
take ectoplasm from the people sitting on the seance and create a artificial larynx, which would speak into the uh, cone for the spirit. Obviously, they didn't they didn't do the uh, ectoplasmic uh, larynx, but uh, but I guess it does explain why later on he does hear uh, the voices because it's supposed to amplify him. Now, do you yourself have a spirit trumpet? I do not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if I go down to UW to the psychic research department if I can get a good spirit trumpet. Yeah, I, and you know it was hard to hard to find a lot on that. Uh, so I don't think uh, that was one of the more common ones. Uh, they did. I know they uh, debunked some uh, at the time that uh, they found. I think it was a this uh, medium had a a cord that would run uh, under you know kind of from his mouth into the cone that could. Uh, you could make the supposedly the spirit's voice. I did not know any of this. I'm very excited to learn this. I'm going to go right after this podcast. I'm going to go look if I can get a spirit trumpet on eBay. Well, they say some of them are supposed to have been collapsible, so you could carry it with you, you know, if you, if you need it uh, in high demand. <laughs> it's like part of a Swiss Army knife. It's collapsible. You can get a little spirit trumpet. Yep, that's right. My wife says I carry too much stuff in my pockets with multi-tools and all that, but uh, I don't have a spirit trumpet, so... <laughs> Okay, well, I have to say, my, my wife, one of her pet peeves at our house is when we print stuff on the printer and we don't flip it over later and use it for scratch paper on the second on the back side as well. And so my wife was watching the changeling with me today, and she <laughs> literally backed up your point when this lady is writing on these pieces of paper, and after she's done scribbling, they throw the paper away. My wife's like, use scratch paper, turn it over. Yeah, they're no fan to, fans of uh, forests, I guess, because uh, <laughs> they're going through a lot. Well, yeah, and this is Seattle, like the conservation capital of the country. So, like, that's probably why Seattle blocked this movie. They got it banned because there's a huge waste of paper in this scene. It is hard to watch that scene without, I think, almost anybody thinking it's like, man, I, you'd think they could conserve that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, again, this is, we're laughing about it, but this pl scene is played absolutely straight and it's just gripping and tense and creepy and when people talk about this being one of the great horror movies of its era this is the scene that really does it um where uh she's channeling the presence of this little spirit in the house and again we know it's a kid we figured out there's a dead kid in this house we think it's this cora bernard who was hit by a coal cart and this is where we learn that's actually not the case there's more going on here than russell notices than russell realizes where uh I'm trying to th I'm trying to paint this picture in my head for people who have never seen it before. How would you describe the scene to people to someone who has never seen it before? Well, uh, when they start asking questions, it, it comes out that they ask if it's Cora, mm -hmm. and it says no. She asks its name, uh, and it comes out the name is Joseph. Yeah. Then the follow-up questions: Did you die in this home? And like, there's no response. How did you die, Joseph? And there's no response. And then uh, who do you want to communicate with? And the voice, the little uh, the little child says, John, John Russell, I want to communicate with John. And this is where it starts getting super creepy when the child starts just saying one word over and over again. Help, yeah. help, 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 help. And she's scribbling this on pages as fast as she can as the kid just repeatedly says help. And it's it's really eerie, this scene. Yeah, and it seems like it specifically wants John's help, because uh, it mentions, yeah, help John at the end. 
just it's this horrible thing horrible scene in the cone the little spirit trumpet tm is uh wobbling in the middle of the room glass is shattering just all sorts of chaos as this little child this little joseph is trying to communicate with john and again we don't really find out what was going on other than john other than this little kid needs help and then it's going to amp up even further in the next scene because as after the medium leaves, John is all rattled that he just went through this seance and he learns there's this little dead kid in his house that needs his help. And now John decides, I'm going to go play the audio tape that they've been, they've been recording the seance the whole time. And, John's been, and they've been recording it. So John listens back to the audio. And on the audio, there's a little more there than he was, in, he was expecting. Yeah, he ends up finding out the – because the – the ghost was actually speaking uh, on the audio tape, and he finds out that the last name of the ghost is Carmichael. Yeah. Okay. Let's go through a couple words here. The, the 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 little boy Joseph says about fifteen words here during the seance, and every one of them is creepier than the one before it. And you can hear it. You can hear his little voice. It's like this tortured whisper, and the kid's saying, "No, Joseph, and house, my room, can't walk, metal." My father, don't help my room, the well. Just stuff like that over and over. And then we hear Joseph Carmichael's sacred heart. Find it. And he's telling John, find it, find it, my body, find it. Yeah, it's pretty uh, clear what he's he's asking for. And this is, I, th- I believe, where we actually see the flashback. As, as John is listening to the little boy's cries for help and pleas for help all of a sudden in his head he sees exactly what happened in this house and man this is a brutal scene to get through <laughs> yeah the the his father is holding up his legs and drowning him uh in his own tub which uh, i guess is why uh, which also ends up being why he hears the banging sound is it's the the boy banging against the sides of the tub uh trying to uh not drown yeah, and again, I will warn people if you don't like disturbing scenes. It's not bloody, it's not graphic or brutal, but it literally is a little handicapped boy in a bathtub. You see his dad walking in there, upends him, holds him up by his feet, so the, go, the kid goes head first into a bathtub, and the dad literally drowned his little boy in a tub, this little handicapped boy, and the kid's screaming and, and kicking, and he's pounding with his fists for help, and that pounding of him against the bathtub is the pounding that John has been hearing in the house. So he literally knows now this little handicapped boy was murdered by his own father, and I am supposed to help this kid. The body has been hidden somewhere. Okay, so this is the story we're at now. There's a dead boy here. There's been some longtime murder mystery. Apparently, it's never been solved. And John goes to the realtor, and he tells her all the things that he heard about, you know, from the seance, all the, all the, wor- all the terms and all the words. And she's the one that starts putting two and two together when she hears Sacred Heart and Joseph Carmichael. And she's like, you know, there used to be an orphanage around here called Sacred Heart. So here is the real story for those of you who don't know this movie. And this is pretty brutal and bleak here. So apparently there was this rich dad here with a handicapped son. He didn't want to have a handicapped son. We'll find out later why. He murdered this kid. They hid the body somewhere. And he replaced this little handicapped boy with a kid from the orphanage, from Sacred Heart. And it was a literal baby switch. In the middle of the night, they switched these kids. He tried to pass off the new one as the handicapped one, and we'll find out later why. And that is the title of this movie, The Changeling, The Little Dead Kid Needs Justice. 
And we end the scene of him learning that knowledge as he looks up to the stairs. As he, he's like, I know what's happening now. He looks up at the top of the stairs, and what does he see there, Matt? Yeah, the uh, the creepy old wheelchair from the secret room that they had found uh, has rolled itself up to the top of the stairs. <laughs> yeah, and I said, like I said, I first heard about this movie from the website Retro Crush, and he listed like the hundred greatest horror movie moments of all time. That's the moment right there he had on his page. It was one of the highest entries. The moment the little wheelchair pops up as on its own at the top of the stairs, it's a I wouldn't say it's like a great jump scare, but it's 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 one of the eerier things you're going to see in a movie. Yeah, it's a really creepy looking wheelchair to begin with. Uh, you know, very old, obviously. And uh, I've heard there's a few video games that uh, have used a uh, a chair that wheelchair like you know looks just like that. Uh, a couple horror uh, video games. Yeah, it's a again a very uh, iconic horror image, and we'll see the wheelchair later. But it will become the symbol of this movie. This little wheelchair that can move around on its own. With this, based I mean, it was the the wheelchair of a little kid who had polio many years ago. So now we realize what's happened. This house, as I said at the start of the movie, there's this guy Joseph Carmichael, very famous senator, richest family in Seattle, big prominent member of the historical society. And this is where we put two and two together and John figures out the story. This guy, Joseph Carmichael, was raised in this house, raised by his father, uh, another Carmichael who is even more prominent. And the dad, Carmichael, is the one who killed the son. That this guy had all this money and all these land holdings. It was all going to be passed down to an heir one day, but the heir had to live to 21. The dad did not trust that this little handicapped boy was going to make it to 21. So he killed the kid. He grabbed another kid from the orphanage, and they basically tried to pass him off as, oh, this is my son who was cured from polio, and the little son that was the beneficiary of all this largesse and a new life is the person who's the most prominent senator in Washington now, Joseph Carmichael, and, and our hero's like, well, i got to go tell this guy exactly how much of his life is a fraud and what happened. Like, he may not know, and this will be the the uh, drama of the last 30 minutes of the movie, does Carmichael know and how much does he know and how much of this murder have people covered up over the years? Yeah, they also, uh, I believe that's there where they end up finding out that there was a well on the property at one point that has since had a house uh, built over it. Yeah, there was, uh, we've, we're going through historical maps and properties that the Carmichael family has owned over the years, and it turns out they had a beachfront property, which has since been sold, and they find, uh, Russell and the realtor find on a map, it used to have a well on it, and there used to be a, you know, the, one of these old hand-drawn wells, and this is, again, right, Matt, this is one of the words we heard in the uh, seance, well. Yeah, you know, the uh, ghost was kind of giving little hints all uh, through the seance that, try to let him uh, know where to look so again we're we're always about one step ahead of this movie we know where it's going to go when it's where it, when it's before it goes there and this and russell's putting two and two together this guy killed his little handicapped kid and they threw the body down to well and they can see on these maps these old historical maps that the well was there until about 1915 and then the house was built over and they boarded it up and john's like this kid's body is down in that well, and that's what he's been trying to tell me all along. Go find my body and avenge me and give me justice. And this is really a very uh, harrowing scene here as he goes to try to get permission to dig up this well. Yeah, so uh, he goes to uh, – they end up going to the house that uh, would now be over where the well had been. And they're asked, you know, They have to ask the lady basically if they can dig up her floor to you know, find this well to see you know, what they can uncover there. As she believes it, she said she wouldn't believe him, but 
uh, her daughter, had, the day that they had the seance, or the night that they had the seance, her daughter saw a, uh, a specter appear in her room. Uh, and I like the way she described it. She said it was very small, very thin, almost gnome-like, mm-hmm. trying to come up through the floor. And he kept staring at her. And so that's what leads her to uh, believe his story. Yeah, there's really two, I would say, super effective scary scenes in this movie. Maybe three if you count the wheelchair at the top of the stairs. But you had the seance, which is just creepy as all hell. And then this scene here where the lady at first doesn't want to let John dig under her house to this well that's been there for 100 years. And then we start seeing the ghost being a little more insistent. The ghost is saying, yeah, no, I, I'm going to I'm gonna make you dig up this well. Where we start, all the people who live in the house start seeing this vision of a little boy trapped under the boards screaming for help and like pounding like a little drowning boy under their floorboards. And it's just a very effective uh, scare here. Yeah, very spooky. Yeah, so they end up seeing him like he's uh, swimming up through the floor again, which uh, I think is... Uh pretty scary <laughs> yeah and i have to say here that they kind of ripped off this plot in another horror movie do you know which one i'm thinking of a much more famous horror movie from the 2000s the ring the ring the ring stole the storyline i love the ring though. <laughs> yeah no the ring is great but that's literally the same thing a little kid is dead in a well and they're trying to show everyone their body by hitting the floorboards underneath yeah it was so we dig up the floorboards, and John's there, and he digs up the well, and they eventually go, and they find a skeleton. As they knew, they found this little handicapped boy who was killed by his father 80 years ago, and uh, they report it to the police, and the police are like, huh, it's odd that you would know that there's a skeleton 80 feet under this house that you don't even live in. Do you know who this kid is? And John's like, I have no idea. Just a wild guess. I, I saw it in a dream. And so they, they don't really buy the story right, right at first. Well, yeah, I'm not sure who would uh, believe a story like that. He just randomly picks uh, somebody's house that he's never met before and has them you know, dig up the floor to find an old well with a skeleton in it. It would be uh, pretty suspicious. <laughs> it was a different time, Matt. <laughs> Seattle, they're very trusting. They're very trusting people. <laughs> okay, so they cart the body away, and the cops know that John knows about this more about the story than he's let on. But we think that he solved the mystery, and you know the body is going to be at peace, and everything is is good. And this is where. John gets one more last reminder from the ghost. The ghost starts, you know, rattling the house again and shaking lights. And John's like, what do you want from me? Like, I solved the murder. I avenged you. I found your body. I know you were switched at birth. And this other guy, Carmichael, took over all your legacy and your life that you would have had. And the the house is just violently shaking. Like, there's still one more step. And this is where John is given one more piece of uh, information where he remembers that the boy said metal, M-E-D-A-L, metal. Yeah, so that uh, drives him to return to the well alone. Uh, He goes back, uh, because I know that the lady and her daughter said they were going to sleep somewhere else that night, so nobody was at the house. Uh, So he returns to the well alone and uh you know just to look around some more and the metal by itself just pushes itself up from uh uh, you know buried in the earth uh for him to find yeah the metal has wanted someone to find it all along because this is the proof this is and again i don't know if people would know this but back in the old days kids used to have these little religious medals they'd wear around their neck like an identification necklace or like a uh like a religious thing i think this one is like a uh 
this one's like a St. Paul's church medal, and it says Joseph Carmichael. This is the little medal that the boy wore around his neck, and when the dad killed him and buried him, they buried the medal with him. But this is the proof that this is who this kid was, the original person who's supposed to be the senator of the state of Washington. So John finds the medal, and he runs over to the senator, and he's trying to tell the senator because he wants to explain what happened and why he must do this. I must tell you what happened, that your whole life is a lie, which... In truth, it's kind of a dick move. Like, I don't know why you have to ruin the senator's life, but I think the ghost is kind of telling him that the ghost is making him do this at this point. Yeah, he's not giving him much uh, much choice but to do that. Yeah, so the senator's playing hard to get. The senator will not see Russell, and we get the sense he kind of knows that something's wrong with his upbringing. He doesn't want to know all this stuff. The senator's playing hard to get, and then there's a long extended scene here where uh, Russell is approached by, like, the cops, the official bodyguards of the senator, and they're like... I hear you're trying to blackmail the senator. Like, you better not do it. Something bad's going to happen to you. Like, it's gonna it gets kind of ominous here. Like, is Russell going to get killed to to shut shut him up? Because like like it's hinted in the movie, a lot of people kind of know about the story and kind of know the back history, and they don't want it to come out. Yeah, and I do kind of think that uh, Carmichael must have known something. Just the 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 way he acts. You know, the fact that one. Uh, he had the you know, John had the medal when he was running up to him at the airport, mm-hmm. and he but he knows he has his own medal, and but when the police officer comes, I think he's uh, saying that he has something of uh, of Carmichael's and he wants it back. Yeah. You have a medal. You have the senator's medal. He would like it back. Yeah, but he knows he still has his also. But I, I think that the you know I don't know why he wouldn't just have him you know arrested for you know coming to the airport like that. It seems like he must suspect something's wrong because he just seems awfully willing to kind of, uh, I don't know, bend a little bit to uh, what he thinks is blackmail. Yeah, to humor him. He'll just humor Russell. And again, is this, the last 15 minutes of this movie is all very tense as, as Russell's trying to explain to the senator what happened and the senator will not see him. Again, he's the most beloved rich citizen in the state of Washington. He doesn't. He wants nothing to do with this wacko. But this is where it all comes to a head, as we kind of said earlier. The ghost has all these superpowers that we're not aware of, where all of a sudden the cop, who's been threatening Russell not to turn over the medal, the cop just suddenly flips in his car and dies. The ghost can start killing people. Yeah, that's a – I mean, of all the things it can do, it can just kill whoever it wants. I'm kind of not sure why it didn't just – kill Carmichael, you know, but uh, could have saved a lot, a lot of trouble. But Well, if he had just killed Carmichael, nobody would ever know the story. Like, the ghost, it's like, by Grabthar's hammer, you must avenge me. He needs to be avenged. <laughs> People need to know the story. Yeah, well, and also there's, uh, you know, some theories out there as far as the, the ghost have to draw energy from the living to be able to uh, do certain things. So uh-huh. maybe... Uh, uh, John's, you know, agony and pain he's been through with uh, his family dying is uh, maybe it's sort of feeding off that to let it uh, to do these things, I guess. Yeah, and that's one of the nuances you might not catch in this movie till you watch it a couple times. That it's entirely possible that this story only happens because John lost his daughter at the start of the movie. He has all this pain, and he was somehow able to act as a conduit for this ghostly energy. So yeah, maybe it just all kind of works out here. Maybe it needed the uh, the emotional you know strength of his agony to uh, you know to give it power. No, that I I totally see that now. That actually makes this a little richer movie. Even when I just realized that now, the ghost needed Russell and Russell needed the ghost. They needed each other. Yeah. 
Okay, so now finally the last scene of the movie, the senator has finally agreed. Okay, I'll listen to you. I'll listen to your wacko story. Come in and tell me what you found. And this is where George C. Scott, you know, goes into uh, this guy's study. And it's a big tense scene where he explains. He's like, you are not who you think you are. Like your father, uh, what is his name? I forget the Carmichael guy name. But he was the richest man in the state of Washington. He owned all this property. He had all this legacy, and he needed an heir to pass it down to. He had one son, this little Joseph Carmichael, little poor, gnome-like handicapped boy, the saddest little figure, and the dad did not want him to inherit all his property. Your dad murdered his kid. He drowned him. I've seen it. He buried the body out by the well. I've seen the, the necklace. He's like, you know all this is true. And what happened is your do- your father adopted you from an orphanage. You were probably too young to remember. He brought you in to replace the kid. And then he sent you away to Europe for like 10 years, I think, because of like World War One, right? World War One was going on at the time? I believe so. Yeah, so it was a convenient excuse. This kid could disappear for 10 years and then come back. And, and, and Russell's like, he passed you off as his heir. Everything you have is a lie. You deserve none of this. This is not your life. It's a little sad boy that died. You have taken his life and you have inherited it. And, of course, the senator is just infuriated. He's like, are you trying to blackmail me? How dare you? And he's like, tries to buy him off. And Russell's like, no, I'm, I'm not here to be bought off. I'm just doing what's right. I'm here to let you know the truth, and I, I wash my hands of all this, that you just must know that you are a changeling. You replaced this kid's life, and you have earned none of this. None of this is yours. Yeah, and this is also kind of why I think he at least believes the story, that he would offer that, you know, the money. And if he didn't really think, if he just thought he was a crazy person, I don't see him uh, offering to pay him off. Yeah, well... Yeah, you get the sense, again, the senator must have known some of this. And, again, when the senator is offering his rebuttal, he never says the story is fake. What he says is, my father was a great man. Like, my father never killed anybody. Maybe it was an accident or something. Like, he just, he's defending his father. He cannot live with this idea that his father, the entire Carmichael family, is not built on death and murder and uh, stuff like that. He cannot handle that. And Russell's like, fine, I've said my piece. Here's the little kid's medal. You know it's true. Deal with it, and basically that's the end of the story for him. Yeah, it seems like he, to him, his father was a great person, which is kind of hard to uh, put that together with somebody who would so callously murder their actual child for whatever reason. But uh, apparently, he treated uh, uh, that Carmichael a lot better. <laughs> yeah, and again, that's why I keep saying this is more more sad than scary. Just this whole big tragedy of family built on lies, a little dead kid, and you can. I, who's the actor that plays the the senator? Is that Melvin Douglas? Is that his name? Uh, yeah, and he was also in uh, Ghost Story, uh, a movie that came out, I think, pretty close to around the same time. Yeah, but I, I really like the acting job he does in this scene here. You can just see the pain in his eyes as he makes peace with what he knows is true, that his whole life is founded on lies and murder and deception. And this is where we get this really effective final scene. You want to walk people through this one? Uh, when he goes back to the – oh, when uh, – when Claire goes to the house, uh, John's not there yet. I, I guess the ghost is still really mad. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not super clear why it's still so mad because I, you know, I think he's done everything he's supposed to. But uh, the wheelchair appears and chases her down the stairs, and you know John actually kind of arrives just in time. Yeah, the house goes crazy. Yeah, it's weird. It's like everything has been done. Russell, John Russell has solved the crime. And as Claire and John go back to the house for the last time, the house basically goes insane and goes berserk. 
Yeah, it starts blowing uh, like gale forced winds at John as he's uh, trying to go up the stairs, uh, and it actually knocks him down, you know, f- you know, from the stairs, and uh, the house actually starts on fire. Uh, so like pyrokinesis. <laughs> well, yeah, we go into poltergeist here, where the house basically just destroys itself at the end of the movie. The murder's been solved. There's no reason for this house to exist anymore. It it never did want people to live it in the first place, as the old lady said. And yeah, this is the. It just goes bonkers at the end, and the house implodes itself. All the windows blow out. It sets itself on fire, and we get this really creepy scene of the senator just walking. It's kind of you learn later. It's kind of a sleepwalk, like a dream, where he just is sleepwalking through the house. The old man is understand the truth. His whole life is a lie, and he's walking through the house as it implodes and gets pulled down around him. And it's implied here that you know this is the, going to be the end of both the house, of the Carmichael family, of the senator. Everybody's dying tonight. It all goes down into the earth. Yeah, and it's uh, it's weird that because Carmichael is not actually physically there, although it you know it seems like it is, looks like he is. It's almost like a like a forced astral projection or something where mm-hmm. it's uh where the ghost is almost like snatching Carmichael's spirit, the psychic energy, and abducting him to the house to uh, you know to kill him there. I guess maybe it's using a spirit trumpet. <laughs> That's right, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, so, again, we see this big, big, uh, big set piece of the house destroying, burning, crashing to the ground. Everything is is destroyed. And this is where we cut back to Carmichael, the senator's office, and he's standing there, and he's been seeing this in his head. And you can see the whole scene of uh, his father drowning the little boy again. We see the murder over one more time, and uh, he sees it in his eyes for the first time. And this is where apparently, the, again, the, the ghost can just kill people, where the ghost, like, must stop his heart or something, right? Because Carmichael suddenly has a heart attack and starts keeling over, and that's really the end of him. The ghost has made sure to know, not only do you realize your whole life is a lie and your dad was a dick, but I'm going to kill you, too. Have a nice day. Yeah, I, I kind of wondered if maybe it was, like, uh, with him psychically thinking he's in the house while it's being destroyed, and he's an older fellow anyways, that, like, maybe that you know, is what uh, caused him to have the heart attack. But I guess either way, the the ghost is responsible for it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's the ghost is kind of whimsical and insistent on being heard for most of the movie, and it gets kind of evil here at the end, which I'm not entirely sure I buy, but it is a satisfying ending. You see Carmichael die, although I guess, I mean, sure, you'd probably like to have a comment on this but it's arguable that Carmichael never actually did anything wrong on his own he may have not even been aware of all this yeah I really think everything was the father who uh, caused all that I don't really Carmichael himself I guess what he was a an orphan who you know kind of got pulled into the family to take his place but I I don't see where he really had a lot of uh, choice in the matter yeah he basically just got the little orphan Annie treatment where somebody rich showed up and gave him an empire yeah, you'd think that the ghost, you know, I, I don't remember if they ever said how the father actually died, but you would think that that would be the one it, uh, it was really wanting to go for. But I guess he died when he was a, a child, so, uh, you know, maybe maybe just so filled with rage and, uh, you know, some of that logic maybe doesn't uh, come to bear. Yeah, and although, again, maybe the ghost couldn't do anything until Russell walked in the house, someone who had the pain of a dead child as well. So, I mean, there's lots of interpretations of this movie, and I've always said this is a it's a more thoughtful horror movie than your typical movie, especially of that era. Like, this isn't just people walking into the woods and getting murdered and people having sex and getting skewered on a, you know, a spear on a bed. Like, this is a very thoughtful, 
philosophical, ethical horror movie. So, again, I really appreciate it. And then, oh, the end shot. I forgot about the end shot where the house is burned down, everything's gone, and we just see the ruins of the house, except for one little item. There's the little music box, the children's music box we saw earlier in the movie. It opens up, and it starts playing the peaceful little song that probably kept little handicapped Joseph entertained for all of his short, happy life. Yeah, to me that uh, lends the idea that, uh, I mean, the house is destroyed, Carmichael's destroyed, but the ghost is still, you know, still manifesting in some way. So it kind of makes you wonder, is even that enough to uh, you, you know, let him go to peace? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. How do you get rid of this ghost? I mean, they've done everything they can, and the ghost doesn't appear to be pissed, but he's still there. <laughs> so, like, I don't know if you're going to be walking through the woods picking blackberries anytime soon. The ghost might start messing with you. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I kind of wonder, I guess if that music box ends up somewhere else, uh, who knows? I guess it could be, maybe he's haunting the music box now. Oh, there we go. That's the sequel. When they when they do the reboot in 30 years, that's the, the music <laughs> box will carry over to be Changeling 2, the spirit trumpet. Well, maybe that music box is in that Friday the 13th TV series. I don't know if you ever saw that <laughs> where they... Uh, they have all the cursed items. <laughs> that would be a wonderful tie-in. I, I actually love that show. That was a great show. Yeah. So anyway, that is The Changeling. Again, one of these underappreciated, very thoughtful, mature horror movies that just people who know it love it. This is absolutely one of the most beloved horror movies among people I know that actually are aware of it. But it just doesn't have the visibility of a Friday the 13th or a you know Nightmare on Elm Street or you know The Exorcist or stuff. But again, I, I would put this higher than any of those. I love stuff like this. It's so more mature and thoughtful and just well thought out and just well acted that it's one that I, I I really hope people will listen to this episode and hear Matt and I talk about it and just realize the the kind of reverence we have for a movie like this. Yeah, I was also going to say the uh, director of this mu- uh, movie, Peter Medic, yeah, he's done a lot of things, but uh, something I was surprised when I was looking at uh, his uh, filmography is he had adapted a half-hour uh, British TV uh, adaptation of the uh, D.H. Lawrence story, The Rocking Horse Winner, which I had heard of. It's made a lot of people's list. Uh, it's a good uh, story. It's sort of quasi-horror, uh, but uh, so I ended up – it's on YouTube. I ended up watching. It's kind of a fun watch. Um, uh, just off the top of your head, Matt, since you know your obscure horror movies clearly – off the top of your head, can you think of another one you think I should do on staff picks that maybe people might not be aware of? Sorry to put you on the spot here. Oh, no, that's okay. Well, there's one that immediately springs to mind. Most people haven't heard of it. It's just called Haunted. It had uh, Kate Beckinsdale and Aiden Quinn. Okay. Uh, I believe that was from maybe 99, somewhere around, 1999, somewhere around there. And it is actually an adaptation of uh, a novel by uh, James Herbert. Hmm. And uh, I think it's really good. It's a haunted house story. It's kind of, it's a period piece, so it's set uh, back in Victorian times. But I think it's a, a great one. I love those old Victorian era horror or haunted house movies. I know The Others is kind of like that as well with Nicole Kidman. Oh yeah. Okay, I'm just uh, we're uh, this has been kind of a fairly short episode, so I'm gonna run you through a list here real quick. I have I have mentioned my list of the top uh, ten great horror movies most people have never seen. I'm curious how many of these you've seen. I'm gonna name these for you and for our listeners of episodes I may be going over on staff picks here. Are you ready for this one? Sure, go ahead. The original Wicker Man. Have you seen that one? Yes, I have. The other from 1971 or 72 with the twin brothers. Uh, I've not seen that one. Okay. Carnival of Souls, the original one from the 50s or 60s. 
Yes, I have. Yes. Okay. And then we Changeling was on there. Black Christmas, you've seen that one? No, I actually have not seen Black Christmas. Have you listened to the Staff Picks episode on it? Not yet. I, I plan to soon, though. Okay. <laughs> Go for that for sure. Um, uh, The Vanishing, the original Vanishing, the Dutch version. I've not seen the Dutch version. Okay. Have you seen the American remake of it? I believe I did. It's been a while. Okay. I'm trying to think of what else is on there. I have Ginger Snaps. Have you seen that one? Uh, yeah, that's the werewolf one, right? Yeah, another Canadian movie. A lot of Canadian movies on my list, I've noticed. And uh, what was the other one? I had I had Southern Comfort on there, which is, it's not 100% a horror movie. It's like Deliverance, but set in the in Louisiana Bayou. Oh, I have seen that. It, it's been quite a while, but yeah, I've seen that one. Okay, and there's one I want to add to that list that I've become a fan of of recent years, Trick or Treat. It's like a little anthology from a couple oh, years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, I love Trick or Treat. Yeah, okay. that's a good one. And then the last one on the list is uh, Session 9, about an abandoned mental hospital. Yes, that's a great one. I have seen that one, too. Okay. These will all be staff picks at some point. I was just curious, just your breadth of knowledge, because those are movies that most people don't know. Now, there's a couple others. I don't know if you ever saw the original uh, Woman in Black. It was uh, from uh, 1989. No, I don't know that one at all. That one's great. Uh, It's actually much better than the the more recent uh, Daniel Radcliffe movie, but... I, I think the original is far creepier. It's an uh, adaptation of a Susan Hill novel, but it's really good. Okay. And The Innocence, of course, uh, from 1961 is a, is a good one. And Curse of the Demon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I just I, I write all these down because I'm always I'm forever looking for recommendations for horror movies, especially from people who kind of know the genre. Like, because none of these are probably just straight out slasher like torture porn movies. I would assume. No, I'm much more of a – I like the ghostly stuff, so uh, most of the ones I've seen would, would probably end up being uh, like haunting-type ones. Actually, Curse of the Demon is uh, my favorite horror writer, uh, Ramsey Campbell. Hmm. That is his favorite horror movie, and it is actually an adaptation of an M.R. James uh, short story. Okay, well, Matt, I just want to uh, I want to tell people this was Matt's first-ever podcast, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> hope I hope it turns out okay. <laughs> no, I just want to say you did a great job. I appreciate you coming on, and I would love to have you on again to pull out some really obscure stuff uh, out of our butts here because they've been, again, it's kind of a lonely world out there when you know all these horror movies and nobody else does. It's like you just you spend most of your life just trying to recommend them to people. Go watch this and let's talk about it. Yeah, so I get made uh, fun of a lot for a lot of my uh, ones I'll bring up from people. <laughs> oh yeah, no, you should see uh, my wife make fun of me for how many true crime books I have on our shelf. She's like, someday the cops are gonna come over here and you're gonna get arrested so fast because you have so many true crime books. Yeah, my dad's retired and he watches like that uh, I Investigation Discovery Channel and he watches that constantly. I told him that uh, you know he could probably go out solving crimes now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, before we sign off, do you want to plug your website, your projects one more time, let people know how they can reach you? Again, my my horror audience is pretty uh, dedicated. When I recommend a horror movie, they want to go watch it. So look, give them something else to uh, recommend. What, where can they find you? Uh, well, uh, my website is horrordelve.com, which is H-O-R-R-O-R-D-E-L-V-E. Uh, and that's where I, I look at a lot of mostly horror literature. Uh, there every now and then I do a movie one, and then I write uh, the movie review column for Black Infinity magazine. It's called Matt Cowan's Threat Watch. And then I mean you can find me. I'm on Facebook, uh, Matt Cowan. Um, uh, so I guess that's it. Pop quiz: What's your all-time favorite horror novel or story? Then, uh, let's see, my favorite. I've got so many of them I love. 
maybe uh, Ramsey Campbell's uh, Incarnate would probably be my favorite uh, horror novel. Uh, short stories, there's so many. You know, for people who like uh, you know movies like the the Changeling, mm-hmm. uh, the Red Lodge by H.R. Uh, Wakefield is a good one, and uh, it, Basil Copper has a one called the the Gray House, which is uh, an excellent. I think it's a novella, but it's also excellent. Yeah, see, I always wish I'd read more horror novels. I know some, like I know Ghost Story by Peter Straub. I know all the big ones, and I know my Stephen King stuff left and right. I will say my favorite horror short story of them all is probably The Raft by Stephen King and Skeleton Crew. I love that one. You know, Are you familiar with that one? Uh, I am familiar with the movie adaptation of it. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually read – I am American, but I read a lot more British horror writers. I'm not sure. I guess it's just my uh, specific tastes. But <laughs> no, you're not alone. I know a lot of people. I just – I don't have the patience to read novels anymore, but I, I kind of wish I did. But, yeah, it's uh, – Again, this is a whole different subject. We'll bring this up somewhere else. But well, that's my short. That's one reason I love short stories so much because I read a lot more short stories than I do novels. Yeah, no, same here. I can do Stephen King short stories like a a book in a day. But yeah, the novels I tend to give up on after a while. Anyway, again, I'm Matt. I just want to thank you for stopping by. I'm glad you had a good time. Again, you again that was his very first. That was his introduction to the world. So thank you for stopping by, Matt. And I think you did a great job. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. All right, and again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me, staffpickspodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me at Twitter, at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I will be searching for more underrated or underloved movies, and I will be finding somebody interesting to come on the air to talk about them, and I will definitely 100% not be murdering my handicapped child up in the attic. (laughs) I will talk to you guys later. Bye. (laughs) 